Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Hudson Institute's first conference this calendar year on the U.S.-Taiwan relationship. My name is Seth Cropsey. I'm a senior fellow here at Hudson and director of Hudson Center for American Sea Power. Many of you will have noticed by now that the U.S. has a new president. And that then-President-elect Trump and Taiwan's democratically elected president, Tsai Ing-wen, spoke by phone in December. That phone call is not the subject of this conference. Rather, the future of the U.S.-Taiwan security relationship is our topic today. But I think of the call... As a, uh, as a symbol of what I expect will be a strengthening of the United States' support for Taiwan's security and thus its free people and its democratic institutions. And I think of this support not only as honoring a commitment that began in the first half of the 20th century, but also as a symbol of the alliance system on which this nation's security, the United States' security, and the future of democratic states around the world rest. Affirming the U.S.-Taiwan security relationship is a powerful and unmistakable sign that the United States remains a reliable partner and ally from East Asia to the Middle East, to Africa, Europe, and in our own hemisphere as well. As the world's great power, the U.S. has an unusual responsibility to act and to be seen as a dependable partner. Lately, politicians have squabbled in this country over slogans like America First, this is like arguing whether a hole in the roof must be repaired. There is no doubt that the leaders of democratic states must put the interests of their people first. There is also no doubt that this often means cooperation with other states whose geography, political institutions, and diplomacy form a common bond whose strength secures shared interests. The United States' cooperation and partnership with Taiwan fits all these element, elements of a common bond. Taiwan's geography places it in the middle of the first island chain that brackets the mainland. In fact, Taiwan sits at the center of U.S. alliances in East Asia. Strategically, control of the first island chain is essential for conventional deterrence in Asia. Taiwan's political institutions are a daily reminder that democracy is as much at home in East Asia as it is in America, a lesson that applies far beyond Taiwan's coast. Our diplomatic interests converge along the same democratic lines. Putting America first requires us to consider our economic relationship with Taiwan. For example, 
our ninth largest trading partner and an integral part of our commercial relations with other democratic states in the region. It requires us to think of Taiwan's interest in defending itself in the face of the PRC's ongoing threat to resolve cross-strait issues by force and our interest in the region's peace as well as in deterring the harm that would accompany China's projection of power into the Central Pacific. Putting America first means honoring our commitments to Taiwan. And with us today to discuss this topic in greater detail, we are honored to have in order of their presentations, Dennis Wilder, Ian Easton, and Bill Schneider, all experts in the U.S.-Taiwan relations with a particular emphasis on security. Uh, Professor Wilder will look at the history of the U.S.-Taiwan security relationship and offer an update on the administration's record thus far. Ian Easton will look at the current state of Taiwan's defenses and the PRC's military, as well as provide an analysis an explanation, at least, a look at the current U.S. administration's <clears throat> defense budget for Taiwan. Uh, finally, Hudson's own uh, senior fellow Bill Schneider will examine what U.S. policy ought to be toward Taiwan and what steps are needed more faithfully to carry out the provisions of existing commitments to Taiwan's defense. I would like to sit down here and let our speakers uh, begin their presentation. So I will not read to you what you can read for yourself on the programs that you have there about their distinguished uh, experience and why they are, in fact, here on this stage. So with that, let me turn the podium over. Or if you wish to speak from your seat to Professor Wilder. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you, Seth, for inviting me to speak today and joining this distinguished panel. Uh, and thank you to the Hudson Institute for hosting. I guess because I am a newly minted academic, um, I am going to define the terms of this discussion. So let me start out by looking at what Secretary Tillerson said in the confirmation process. Because when he was asked by Senator Cardin to answer a question, a written answer, he gave a very comprehensive response that should be, I think, the guiding principles as far as what the administration is going to do for going forward. And he said that the people of Taiwan are friends of the United States, should not be treated as a bargaining trip, the U.S. commitment to Taiwan is both a legal commitment and a moral imperative. He then went on to say that, of course, the U.S. one-China policy recognizes the PRC as the sole legal government of China and acknowledges China's position that Taiwan is part of China. But for our purposes today, what he said next is most important which is, as required by the TRA, the U.S. continues to provide Taiwan with defensive arms and maintains the capacity to resist any resort to force or other forms of coercion 
that would jeopardize the security or the social or economic system of the people of Taiwan. He also said the U.S. upholds the Six Assurances. The key, of course, in his statement for our purposes today is the reaffirmation of the Taiwan Relations Act and the Six Assurances, which, during my time in government, have been the bedrock of our policy toward Taiwan on the security side. To remind you, and most of you know this, but there may be some in the audience who haven't studied the history quite as closely, the TRA was adopted by Congress and enacted on 10 April 1979 after the Carter administration abrogated the Mutual Defense Treaty with the Republic of China. You may not recall, but Senator Goldwater actually took the Carter administration to court over that abrogation of the treaty, saying that the uh, administration did not have the right to abrogate a treaty on its own. However, the United States Supreme Court said this was a political, not a judicial matter, and refused to rule on the issue. And thus, the Congress felt strongly and rightly that it needed to weigh in on exactly what our commitments to Taiwan would be after normalization with Beijing. And the key points here I will not read the Taiwan Relations Act to you. You can go and find that for yourself. But the key points are that the policy of the United States is to provide arms of a defensive nature to maintain Taiwan's self-defense capability and to maintain the capacity of the United States to resist any resort to force or other forms of coercion against Taiwan. Later on, when the United States in 1982 was negotiating the third communique, which obviously was going to have elements in it of trying to reduce arms sales to Taiwan. The Taiwan government came to the Reagan administration and suggested six points of reassurance that the United States could make to Taiwan as it negotiated that communique. And these six points, again, I, you can read them for yourselves, but I just want to briefly remind you of them because they have been central to the policy of the United States on Taiwan. Number one, U.S. would not set a date for termination of arms sales to Taiwan. Number two, the, the United States would not alter the Taiwan Relations Act. Number three, the U.S. would not consult with China in advance of making decisions about Taiwan arms sales. Number four, the U.S. would not mediate between Taiwan and China. Fifth, the U.S. would not allow its position about Taiwan sovereignty, which was that the question was to be decided peacefully by the Chinese themselves and would not pressure <clears throat> Taiwan into negotiations. And finally, the U.S. would not formally recognize Chinese sovereignty over Taiwan. Now, some may debate whether we have lived up to all of those commitments, but I can tell you from my years in government, from my years in the Bush administration in particular, um, I feel that I always abided by these agreements and these assurances, and that I was very aware and conscious of them, and that they were fundamental to having a good relationship on both sides of the Taiwan Strait. 
So with these in mind, let me make just a few points about Taiwan defense policy. Frankly, it's a little difficult to say where the Trump administration is going to go yet because the key players aren't in place. Uh, Assistant Secretary of State for Defense, I can tell you, is an incredibly important player when it comes to making decisions on Taiwan, and sim similarly, the Assistant Secretary of State. Neither of those two positions have been announced yet. Um, but as we think ahead to the administration, I would just say a few things. The next speaker is going to talk in detail about China's military buildup. I would only say a couple of quick things. I see no reason for the administration to pull back from selling defensive arms to Taiwan or assisting Taiwan on indigenous capabilities. I think the Chinese assertive the behavior in the East China Sea and the South China Sea should put the U.S. on notice that Beijing is starting to flex its muscles in the region, that it has abandoned the hide and bide policy, and I think Defense Secretary Mattis the other day warned very well on Capitol Hill when he said China is, quote, uh, shredding trust in the region with its maritime assertiveness. My own view is that we need to concentrate assistance on credible homeland defense for Taiwan, using asymmetrical capabilities to help the people of Taiwan withstand any initial cyber, air, and missile attacks. I think that what Taiwan needs to concentrate on is jointness of forces. If there's any document that I think is one of the most beautifully written documents, if it can be said, of a DOD, it is JP1, the U.S. Doctrine of Jointness. The synergies that you can develop between forces today in space, in cyber, uh, with your services is truly magnificent. And if we can teach Taiwan how to do this and do it well, and they can train to do it well, they will have a credible defense capability. As a former CIA officer, I will also tell you that there is another element of this that I think we haven't spent enough time on, and that is the invisible conflict of subversion. Taiwan needs a whole-of-society approach to defense so that Beijing knows that if their forces try to invade, they will face an insurmountable task in subduing the Taiwan people. Obviously, a key aspect of what I'm talking about is cyberspace. Taiwan's been slow to create the kind of cyber command needed against China's formidable capabilities. And we in the United States are very well aware of China's formidable capabilities in cyberspace. I'm glad that the Ministry of Defense in Taiwan has set up or plans to set up a unit later this year, but I think this needs to be a very high priority in the Taiwan defense budget. Taiwan also needs to study the concepts of whole-of-society defense that are being developed by countries like Poland, Finland, Latvia, and Lithuania in the wake of Russian operations in Ukraine. Believe me, the Chinese are studying what the Russians are doing, and they may have their own little green men strategy at some point for Taiwan, and we need to take it seriously. This is a new aspect of warfare that hasn't been studied very well. 
There are, though, many U.S. experts in this area. One uh, expert who I talked to before this um, was a, a colleague of mine at Georgetown University in Special Operation Forces, and he says that there are many ways we can help Taiwan to develop a much better capability in the area. So to sum up my quick remarks here, Taiwan is up against a formidable task. The key is the will of the Taiwan people to resist with U.S. assistance. I think others will speak to the fact that none of this can be accomplished on the cheap. The people of Taiwan must fully understand that freedom is not free, as we know in the United States, and that in order to have these capabilities, they're going to have to spend more on defense. Thanks. Well, a very good afternoon to you all, and thank you to Seth Karopsi for the invitation. It is a tremendous pleasure, a privilege to be here, and uh, great fun, and particularly to be on this panel, on this topic at this time. In many ways, the United States appears to be at a turning point in its policy towards Asia and towards China and towards Taiwan in particular. So many of the ways that we have been doing things for years, if not decades, may change. And the way our policy and our strategy looks a year from now, or two or three years from now, may be very different than the way it has looked uh, in previous years. And so I think this is a very important topic at a very important time. And I thought I might just direct my uh, brief remarks to two points. The first is the security situation in the Taiwan Strait, and the second is what the new Trump administration may or may not do to adjust to the reality. So on the first point, we have seen a remarkable deterioration in the relationship between China and Taiwan over the past year. Absolutely remarkable. And what's so remarkable about it is that Taiwan's new DPP government and President Tsai Ing-wen have been so pragmatic and so cautious and have really made uh, multiple attempts across the spectrum to meet China halfway, actually to meet China more than halfway. And despite that, Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party have rejected her attempts wholesale and have really ratcheted up tensions. Now, we saw this before with the KMT government under President Ma Ying-jeou, where Taiwan's government tried to do everything in its considerable power to accommodate China. Uh, the previous KMT government, by the end of its eight years in office, was almost obsequious towards Beijing. And it seemed to be the case that the more Taiwan tried to make peace, the more the Chinese tried to make trouble. This has not always been the case. This was certainly not the case when Hu Jintao was chairman of the Central Military Commission and the General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. The trouble really began in earnest in 2013 when Xi Jinping began to consolidate his power. That is when the tone and the tenor the dynamic really significantly changed. It was that summer that we saw the Mission Action uh, series of military exercises where the PLA was actually simulating an all-out invasion 
campaign against Taiwan. This, despite Taiwan's policies, despite the detente that had been agreed upon, despite the historic uh, trade ties that had been developed, and despite the fact that the president of Taiwan at that time had embraced his own version of the One China Principle. And things only deteriorated from that point. We saw the declaration of the ADAs. We saw the M503 flight line. We saw a series of very provocative military exercises directed against Taiwan, a series of very provocative studies that came out of the Chinese military, the PLA, directed at uh, the invasion and occupation of Taiwan. The entire tone changed with Xi Jinping. And we've seen the same thing happen not just against Taiwan, but against Japan, against South Korea most recently, against the Philippines, of course against the United States. China has become a much more hawkish, much more aggressive, and much less rational international actor under Xi Jinping. And so I think there's very little reason for us to be optimistic that uh, Taipei and Beijing uh, could come to some uh, framework or some agreement for sustaining the status quo. Not because that's not t what Taiwan wants. I think the government in Taipei desperately wants to be able to maintain the status quo and peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. But that's not what Xi Jinping wants. So I'm not saying that's not what China wants, because he does not represent the will, of course, of the Chinese people. He's just the leader of the Chinese Communist Party and the military. But that's what he wants. And I think it's very difficult if you look at his track record, his spoken statements, his military visits, all the activities that have transpired under his leadership. It's very difficult to make the argument that Xi Jinping wants peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait, that he wants to maintain the status quo. Clearly, he does not. Clearly, his plan is to piece by piece, step by step, to dismantle Taiwan's democracy, to subvert Taiwan, to change Taiwan, and ultimately to annex it or to conquer it, and to bring on an oppressive and alien form of government over the Taiwanese people, a form of government that nobody in Taipei, nobody in the government, nobody in the military, and nobody none of the citizens, none of Taiwan's 23 million citizens, could ever accept. And so the Taiwan Strait flashpoint is back and is growing more dangerous. And it's likely to grow far more dangerous in the years ahead. In this environment, I think the solution, to the extent that there is any solution to this kind of problem, I think the response that we take in Washington, and the response that uh, Taiwan is starting to take, and rightfully so, is to prepare for the worst case scenario, is to start to invest more into hard power, to invest more into the types of capabilities that uh, would deter, hopefully, Chinese aggression, and if necessary, in that nightmare scenario, defeat Chinese aggression. And so, in that regard, I think there is reason for cautious optimism uh, with the new Trump administration. It's too early to say, of course, but the initial sense, I think, that we're getting is that the new administration wants to invest much more into our military, 
to rebuild our military, and in particular to focus and prioritize the types of capabilities that would be the most important for the defense of time. Capabilities like new stealth fighter, more stealth fighters. Capabilities like more Virginia-class attack submarines. Capabilities like more Aegis uh, destroyers. To improve our ability to fight in cyberspace and in outer space and across the electromagnetic spectrum. To improve our missile defense capabilities. These are all the tools that the United States must have at its disposal if it's ever called upon to come to Taiwan's defense. And these are all the tools that in peacetime, if successful, will hopefully deter conflict and prevent conflict from happening uh, in the first place. And so in that regard, I think there's reason uh, for uh, some optimism, just based upon what we've heard so far, and the priorities that the new administration seem to be uh, bringing in office with them. But of course, uh, as Mr. Wilder said, it, it really is too early to say. The actions taken by the Pentagon by themselves will not be enough. We also need to do much, much more with Taiwan to have a much more forward-leaning and a much more open-minded policy on arms sales uh, towards Taiwan. Taiwan needs the United States to assist it to develop certain components for its indigenous defense submarine program. That is something clearly that would be in our national interest to support because submarines have such a powerful strategic effect. Now, we can debate the tactical utility of submarines based on the scenario, but at the strategic level, nothing would deter the Chinese in the same way that submarines do. And they've proven this fact by spending the last two decades going from city to city to city around the world to forbid governments and industries and doing everything in their considerable power to try to make sure that Taiwan does not develop a new submarine program. Because Taiwan already has four submarines, two of which are modern. And those submarines clearly calculate negatively into China's war plan for the invasion of Taiwan. But beyond submarines, Taiwan also needs to recapitalize its air fleet. Taiwan needs new fighter aircraft, whether that comes in the form of F-16s or F-35s. Clearly, the future is F-35. Taiwan needs new uh, fighter jets. Its current uh, inventory uh, is aging, and they're becoming, uh, in some cases, dangerous to fly because there's so many uh, hours on those airframes. But the Taiwanese continue to fly them because they have no choice and because maintaining their air defense identification zone really matters. Because fighter aircraft are not just for wartime, they're also for peacetime, especially when the Chinese are flying bombers uh, around the country and they're sending aircraft carrier groups around the country. Taiwan also needs the next generation missile defense capability. And I think there's a debate what would be uh, the most suitable for Taiwan, and ultimately only Taiwan's Ministry of National Defense can settle that debate. What makes the most sense for them, whether it's that or Aegis or Aegis Ashore uh, or something indigenous, uh, that's not really a question for the United States. The question for the United States is, are we or are we not going to begin making defense articles and services available to Taiwan in a reliable and regular fashion? Are we going to continue to bundle arms sales notifications the way we did under the Obama administration? Because that was a disaster. That played havoc with Taiwan's ability to formulate a credible self-defense strategy. And it played havoc also 
with the credibility, the prestige and the credibility of the United States as a country willing to stand up to Chinese pressure and meet its commitments. Three arms sales packages in eight years is shameful. No matter how big the price tags were, it needs to be very regular and very routine to have the effect of showing our commitment to the Taiwan Relations Act and the six assurances. Arms sales alone and a military buildup at home alone will also not be enough. It's not sufficient because the threat is so uh, stressful. Taiwan faces a threat environment unlike any other democracy uh, or any other ally in the world. China's massive military buildup, its rapid buildup of armaments capabilities in recent years is really putting Taiwan in a difficult place, especially when you combine that with a reluctance here in the United States to make arms sales in a regular, or arms sales notifications in a regular fashion. We also need to begin inviting the Taiwanese Navy to RIMPAC, the Rim of the Pacific Naval Exercises in Honolulu, and to invite the Taiwanese Air Force to Red Flag in Nevada, to invite the Army to Fort Irwin and the National Training Center in California, to invite the Marine Corps to 29 Palms in California so they can have access to world-class uh, urban warfare training uh, environments, which they uh, so desperately need. There's so many tools at our disposal for helping Taiwan have a credible self-defense capability. There's so many initiatives that are waiting to be pushed forward. It only takes political courage and political wisdom, and hopefully we'll get that in Washington. Now, there's no guarantees. It still is too early to say. Uh, but hopefully we'll start to see uh, some of this out-of-the-box type thinking as we go forward. So there's a lot of work to be done in Washington. There's a lot of work to be done in Taipei. Uh, and, then, of course, there's a lot of work to be done across the region in Tokyo and Seoul, across the region for the democracies of Asia and of the Pacific to stand shoulder to shoulder to make sure that the American-led international order, rules-based order that respects rule of law, and human rights and universal values to make sure that this is not subverted and broken and to make sure that our relationships which we've forged over decades in some cases forged with blood with our allies to make sure that these are not split apart because that's exactly what Beijing is attempting to do uh, at the current time this is happening uh, in South Korea uh, most recently but it's happening across the board and so we need to make sure that does not happen with Taiwan because the stakes for getting this wrong are so high. Uh, and so I will conclude with that thought and turn it on over to Mr. Schneider, who will give you a much more detailed uh, appraisal of what we might do. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you. As a, I uh, appreciate this opportunity to discuss this very a uh, timely question. As uh, we have a change in administration, it's, it is always an opportunity to review the uh, ways in which we can uh, do better in terms of uh, uh, both uh, national security and regional security. And uh, uh, Taiwan and the U.S. have had a, uh, a security relationship since uh, 1954 after the uh, 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 the uh, takeover of China 
by uh, uh, the uh, uh, Communist Party in the, in the late 40s in the Korean War, the uh, U.S. decided that they needed a different kind of security relationship with allied and friendly countries in, in East Asia than they did in, in Europe. And so instead of a multinational um, uh, security arrangement such as NATO, or uh, the uh, later CETO uh, in Southeast Asia, they focused on uh, the so-called San Francisco plan of a spoke and hub kind of thing where uh, the United States would have a sequence of bilateral security relations with the countries in East Asia. And uh, uh, we, uh, the bilateral uh, Sino-American uh, Treaty of uh, 1954, which survived until 1959, was uh, the uh, the bedrock of our uh, security relationship uh, with China. And uh, after normalization, as uh, was discussed, uh, uh, both the U.S. and China needed a way to manage the uh, question of relationships with with Taiwan that would retain the peace and uh, uh, stability in, in the uh, the region and I th think uh, in that respect we have a um, we have a framework that is a, is a viable framework for uh, maintaining the interests of all parties that is to to have a, a, a peaceful transition uh, if uh, that's what the uh, people of uh, China and Taiwan want uh, and, and to have it worked out by them o uh, over time. Uh, we also uh, want to uh, find a way to, to assure that there are no incentives uh, for uh, the use of coercion or uh, 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 the, the use of force to, to change the uh, situation in Taiwan. And between the, uh, uh, the uh, three communiques, the uh, uh, six assurances, and the Taiwan Relations Act, I think we have a viable uh, framework for, uh, for uh, dealing with this. And in uh, the 1980s, uh, deep in the 20th century, when I served in the Department of State, I had some responsibility for the uh, uh, execution of, the, of these um, uh, three uh, elements of our security relationship with Taiwan and the uh, PRC, the uh, uh, TRA, the uh, six assurances and uh, the uh, three communiques, and I think if if those are uh, uh, executed as as intended, uh, they can serve as a viable uh, uh, legal and uh, and policy infrastructure for uh, peace in the region. But I think one of the things that's uh, uh, that has happened, and uh, our other speakers have referred to it, there have been developments in the region that are are. Uh, placing great stress on uh, the effectiveness of, the, of this relationship. And part of the um, uh, uh, situation in which the United States can uh, have a constructive influence is its uh, responsibilities for uh, arms transfers. Uh, the the uh, rise of China has been extraordinary, both in economic and military terms, and it is uh, certainly the dominant military power in the, uh, in the region. But uh, that, uh, the way in which China has uh, evolved has placed uh, extraordinary stress on the uh, arms transfer uh, practices developed in, uh, for the, uh, under the uh, Taiwan Relations Act. Uh, uh, t the underlying concept was that Taiwan should have a, as uh, stated in the, in the act, a self-sufficient self-defense uh, capability. 
And uh, uh, in the implementation of that, uh, uh, remember, starting in 1979, it was only three years after the death of Mao. Uh, the Chinese had no uh, significant capability for expeditionary operations at that point. And so uh, we were dealing with uh, uh, relatively modest requirements that uh, Taiwan would have to be able to assure that it, it could not be uh, coerced into a, a, a relationship with uh, the mainland that uh, uh, it did not uh, freely choose. Uh, and uh, the, f the focus was on assuring that, that China had an adequate, sorry, that Taiwan had an adequate capability in land, sea, and air forces to be able to deal with the, the threat posed. And, and uh, uh, the um, uh, mo modest uh, arms supply relationship we, we had at the time was, was, um, was adequate. And during the course of the 1980s, there were some uh, some incremental uh, improvements in those those capabilities, but uh, in uh, uh, in the, over the past decade, uh, uh, China has uh, apparently had less patience with the uh, legal and policy infrastructure we we've had and have uh, increased the uh, the uh, threat to Taiwan. Uh, this is uh, perhaps. Uh, uh, started a after the uh, missile firing incident in, in, the, in 1996 when uh, uh, Taiwan's vul vulnerability to, to uh, cruise and ballistic missile attack was made, uh, made very apparent, but uh, perhaps less uh, subtly uh, uh, was the uh, vast asymmetry in, in uh, undersea capabilities. Well, uh, Taiwan had a few uh, submarines, two of which were uh, purchased from uh, the Netherlands in the in the mid 80s, but the the, the procurement was interdicted for political reasons. Uh, as a result, uh, Taiwan was left with a very small undersea capability at a time when uh, uh, there was a very substantial technology transfer from Russia to China in the development of advanced uh, uh, diesel electric and uh, more recently air independent propulsion systems for uh, submarines for uh, for China. In addition, uh, uh, again through technology transfer from uh, Russia, the uh, modern air defense, the uh, HQ-9 for example, uh, has uh, made it unlikely that uh, uh, third or fourth generation tactical aircraft can uh, can survive in, in that environment. Um, uh, more recently, uh, the uh, deployment of the uh, DF-16, which had previously been deployed in central China in relatively small numbers in Anhui province, has now been moved to coastal areas in very large quantities, uh, perhaps of, of as many as 1,500 uh, missiles. These are on five-axle uh, transporter erector launchers, so they uh, they can't be readily pre-targeted, and uh, they uh, uh, have a, a, a range of uh, 800 to 1,000 kilometers and very high accuracy. Uh, we we don't know too much about the payload of these uh, uh, systems, but uh, even assuming it, they, these are all uh, conventional weapons, that poses a, an extraordinary uh, extraordinary threat. Uh, but uh, uh, because of the nature of the uh, uh, these the new system, the uh, uh, DF-16, uh, it's a very high trajectory, 
That means that its closing velocity is very high and could not be intercepted by the Patriot missiles, at least the ones that Taiwan has. So with this kind of threat picture in mind, I think it's time to revisit both the content and technology behind our arms transfer policy. Because one of the pervasive trends that began in the 1980s but now has gone throughout the defense establishment is the impact of the technologies of information and its military applications on the capacity of small nations to have a rather effective defense. And just in looking at some of the different domains of warfare, the issue of the submarine, of course, has been a prominent one for many years. The U.S. approved the sale of a submarine, if we could find one, in 2001. But because the U.S. does not produce submarines, or at least produce conventionally powered submarines, the only alternative at the time was the use of an older U.S. diesel-electric design and modernizing it. But because of the way the foreign military sales system works, where the U.S. government takes on the obligation of assuring that the product will work and will assure a lifetime system of support, it was very expensive. And as a result, Taiwan did not move ahead with that particular system. But now it's going to undertake an indigenous program development. That will take some time. But in the meantime, things are happening with this application of the technologies of information that can offer both a bridge to the time when Taiwan has submarines, but also reflecting a sort of teaming of manned and unmanned systems, which is, for those of you who've had an opportunity to witness how the U.S. is doing these things, that is becoming a very compelling suite of technologies that will produce new capabilities and new concepts of operation that are in turn creating wholly new ways of conducting national defense. In the case of undersea warfare, where, as I said, our policies with respect to arms transfers was to assure that Taiwan could engage the threats in the domain of self-sufficient self-defense in land, sea, air, undersea, and so forth. The development of unmanned systems for undersea warfare is proceeding very rapidly, in part because many of these platforms are already in use in civil applications for oceanography and bathymetric research and so forth that enable there to be a commercial market for these unmanned platforms. These unmanned platforms can carry sensors, and the seabed can be instrumented so that through the use of unmanned systems, the 
the situation with respect to both undersea vehicles and surface ships can be much better understood than conventional technology and can cover a much larger area. So having a networked undersea sensor capabilities then can be augmented by existing weapon systems or, as they come online, manned submarines as well. Another application of modern information technologies involves the technologies of autonomy, artificial intelligence, man-machine interface, and so forth. These technologies will enable small countries to operate much larger forces, much more effective forces as well, because the technologies of autonomy permit the autonomous operation of sensors and weapon systems. So these technologies are moving very rapidly. They're not dependent on military innovation in the sense that Toyota is probably going to do more to move the technologies of autonomy quickly than anything that's done by the Department of Defense. But these technologies will be picked up by the Department of Defense, and they are being involved. Not far behind are the technologies of directed energy, when combined with autonomy, can produce very effective air and missile defenses. These technologies in this application are not yet mature, but there's a great deal of innovation going into these areas. So I think the underlying point is that it's possible to be optimistic, both from the perspective of technology and the perspective of affordability, to be able to improve Taiwan's capability to maintain a self-sufficient self-defense that will not enable it to conquer the mainland China, but will enable the U.S. to support Taiwan within the terms of the Taiwan Relations Act, the three communiques, and the six assurances that will enable it to achieve that outcome. It requires some change in thinking in the sense that even though Taiwan has a very sophisticated scientific and industrial economy, its defense establishment is focused on technologies that are largely incremental improvements of systems that were fielded in the 1970s and 80s. And it now needs to think in a modern fashion about using modern technology that is going to be used by armed forces everywhere, including China, to create the conditions that will enable a peaceful evolution of relations between Taiwan and the mainland so that the aims of this infrastructure of policy and diplomatic and legal arrangements that have served our interests for nearly 40 years can continue. So thank you. I'd be glad to answer questions. I'd like to thank all three of our speakers for their presentations, but I'll do that more formally at the end of our discussion this morning, this afternoon.
Um, it's time for questions and maybe answers. Um, when you are recognized, would you please tell us your name um, and the organization you're affiliated with and to whom your question in, in the form of a question is addressed? Front row here will start first. Thank you. John San with CTI TV of Taiwan. Um, Taiwan has just launched, officially launched, its indigenous um, submarine program. Since the U.S. is not doing diesel-electric submarines anymore, um, in what concrete ways can the United States help Taiwan in this regard? Um, will the United States um, be able to overcome whatever Chinese opposition to this? Um, uh, as a quick follow-up, um, will the uh, Trump-Xi summit um, have any impact on U.S.-Taiwan relations, including security relations? Thank you. Uh, the questions are addressed to all panelists. Thank you. Um, well, I at least talk about the submarine. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, the U.S. actually has an industry that uh, supports uh, uh, submarines, both com uh, conventional and uh, nuclear. Uh, for, for example, uh, Australia was having difficulty with its conventional so-called Collins-class submarines, and uh, uh, the uh, U.S. firm General Dynamics worked with Australia to, to help resolve the, the problems in that, uh, in that submarine. Um, the, so the industrial base and scientific base is, is there uh, to do it. Uh, one should not underestimate the formidable task of, of developing a, a submarine from scratch. It's uh, uh, and, and hence my um, interest in, in finding some other things that will help ta uh, Taiwan until they are able to actually build a submarine. And uh, so the emphasis on using some of the new technologies, I think, might be, be usefully considered as part of a whole undersea system of which a, a manned submarine is one part. Well, as to the question of will the, the forthcoming meeting between President Trump and General Secretary Xi Jinping, will that affect our approach to Taiwan or arms sales to Taiwan? I'm skeptical that it will. I very much doubt that it will have any impact. The only impact that I could uh, envision would be that it might delay, because I, I would not anticipate the White House to announce a new uh, arms sale in the, in the next week or two before the visit or during the visit. So we might have to wait a few more weeks than we would otherwise for an arms sales uh, notification to Congress. Uh, but other than that, uh, I'm quite optimistic that this meeting will not have uh, significant effects on our relationship with Taiwan, the type of which people have been worried about, uh, I know, in recent weeks. I was in Taipei last week, and there was an odd sense of pessimism on, on one side, depending on who you talk to, and then a wild optimism on the other side, depending on who you talk to. I, I'm more in the optimistic camp. I, I am not as sanguine about this summit as my colleague, and I'll tell you why. I have worked on summits before. 
I have done all of the paperwork. I've been in the deputies and principals processes. I'm a little worried that we are rushing into this summit on the U.S. side. I mean, it's supposedly, if the dates that we hear are correct, in early April. The Chinese side, to me, is much more prepared for this meeting than the American side. After all, as I said before, many of the key positions aren't even filled within the administration. And I, I was a little bit disquieted by the way that Secretary Tillerson in Beijing uses Chinese terms. Um, I'm not sure he was fully appreciating what those terms meant, but certainly uh, I do not think the Trump administration should be uh, supporting the new great power relationship that President Xi Jinping has talked about. That is not in the American interest. First of all, there are, there are others in East Asia who um, are great powers. There are not two great powers in East Asia from our point of view. And so I, I'm a bit worried. Um, and I would caution the administration to be very careful. Uh, the Chinese know this record very well, and they can turn your words against you. And so um, I think we, we need to be careful. I would hope that there's nothing done, frankly, at the summit on the Taiwan question. I hope that this summit deals with economic issues, building relationship, um, but doesn't actually, I, I would prefer that this issue wait a while until the administration really has had time to think about where it's going on, on the issues. Yeah, and on the the, uh, the submarine question, I'm not. Um, I mean, the fact that the United States hasn't built a diesel electric submarine for 40 years or so is uh, it is relevant. It's important, but there are some things that the United States uh, industrial defense industrial base does that are directly applicable, even though we haven't built uh, SSKs for a long time. For example, turning the metal that the hull is made out of. That applies as much to nuclear boats as it does to diesel boats. Um, combat systems integration, um, that also has applications to a diesel electric submarine. So I, you know, the fact, just to reiterate, the fact that we haven't produced one doesn't mean that we can't be very useful. So, uh, the next, uh, next question, let's go to the back of the room here. Yes, I see it. Uh, Russell Shaw with the Global Taiwan Institute. Excellent presentations. Um, my question um, has to do with hoping you guys can think a little bit more long-term. I know there's a lot of near-term things that we have to resolve before um, in the immediate, um, but there's some prominent uh, American strategists have uh, suggested that in order to reach a new modus vivendi with China that the, um, the United States should consider uh, even rescinding the um, the six assurances, uh, do you? Uh, this question is for all the panelists. But do you agree with such an assessment? And B, what could what does the uh, six assurances achieve that the TRA alone cannot? Um, so maybe perhaps um, leave that to the um, the panelists to discuss. Well, just uh, a few things from my own uh, uh, recollection when uh, the uh, three communiques were signed, uh, the uh, PRC. Uh, negotiators pressed us for um, 
decisions in, in each one of those areas that's uh, now become one of the six assurances. And uh, the, uh, uh, President Reagan at the time did not want to allow the signing of the uh, joint communique in uh, 1982 to uh, lead to a belief that it would affect the obligations under the TRA for uh, arms transfers. And uh, I think that it's unlikely that the the U.S. would uh, change the uh, the uh, the basis under the uh, TRA because it is a statutory obligation of of the administration, and I, I doubt the Congress would agree to a change in that uh, that statute. So it's probably more constructive to to look at the communique, the six uh, assurances, and the TRA as a as a policy and and legal structure. That, that has established the way uh, our three uh, entities can deal with um, this problem until the people in uh, China and Taiwan find a way to, uh, to deal with their uh, ultimate political relationship. I would just go ahead. The six assurances are bedrock. They are the guidelines. In addition to the law of the land, the Taiwan Relations Act, the six assurances are the guidelines. And what makes them so important is the insurance, the assurance that the United States will not change its position on Taiwan's sovereign status. Now, what does that mean? It means that we do not view Taiwan as part of the PRC sovereign territory. And Taiwan's international status is a matter that is not decided, and it's to be decided at some point in the future, potentially in the distant future, when the threat of Chinese attack on Taiwan, potentially on U.S. forces in Asia, uh, has been removed, when that goes away. But the six assurances by themselves are necessary, but they're not sufficient. I think we need to be thinking about more assurances to Taiwan. We need to be thinking about perhaps a joint communique with Taiwan. Our policy towards Taiwan as it stands today is uh, insufficient, it's old, it's outdated. Our, the last time we thought seriously about it was in 1992, 1993, 1994. Taiwan, since that time, has become a dynamic uh, democracy. It's become a beacon of freedom in Asia. The entire situation with Taiwan and with China and with the United States has changed. And so it makes sense for us to evolve our policy as that situ situation changes. and. As Xi Jinping and the PRC put the squeeze on Taiwan, it becomes even more important as the Chinese rat ratchet up the tensions that we find ways to work with the Taiwanese to ratchet the tensions back down. And I think that's why we need to be thinking much more creatively, not just about the past, but about the future and what we want to do in the future with Taiwan. Thank you very much. <coughs> Sorry. Thank you very much. Uh, Dong Huiyu with China Review News Agency of Hong Kong. And uh, I have a follow-up question on the summit. <coughs> Yesterday, Michael Green, who is uh, just coming back from a visit to China last week, mm -hmm. said that uh, he believed uh, the Taiwan issue will be the number one point that Xi Jinping will push on during the summit. 
And also, uh, it was reported by the media that uh, uh, Trump's administration will announce a new arms, new package of arms sales to Taiwan right after the summit. So my question is, how uh, leaks summit will affect the arms sales to Taiwan? Or put in another word, uh, how the arms sales to Taiwan will affect the summit's result, because I believe Trump would, would like to build a good relationship with uh, Xi Jinping, but would it be a you know kind of negative <laughs> effect on their you know the result of this summit? Thank you. Well, my view is that this summit should be about one or two key issues. The first one has to be North Korea. We are in an incredibly dangerous situation on the North Korean issue. The North Koreans are moving toward having nuclear-tipped missiles capable of striking the continental United States. Experts disagree, but it could be three years, it could be four years, it could be five years, but there's no question that they're making progress in this direction. China has to get serious about this problem. Earlier this year, China talked about coal and cutting off coal, and there were big headlines. I am now talking to experts who question whether that decision really had much validity since the, the point was that they were actually, in the first two months of this year, reaching the limit in dollar amount that they could buy from North Korea under their agreements to UN sanctions because anthrax coal in China has gone up in price and so volume versus price they were already at their limits. If that's the case then China didn't get serious with the coal ban. President Trump needs to be very clear with Xi Jinping that China has got to get serious about this problem or, as Secretary Tillerson said in Korea, all options are on the table. Uh, China needs to take ownership of this issue. Another of my colleagues, you mentioned Mike Green, but Victor Cha has made the point that I think is a very good one, that if China wants us to go back to the table, this time they pay for anything the, the, the uh, North Koreans want. In all the other negotiations, what happened? The United States was left to pay for either light water reactors or coal or um, you know fuel for the North Koreans. Um, no, this time China needs to have skin in the game. So if Wang Yi wants us to go back to the table, great. But what's China going to put on the table? How is China going to guarantee this time that the North Koreans behave? correctly and live up to their agreements because every time we've had an agreement with the North Koreans, they violated it. So that's a long-winded answer, to, but I think this is the key question of the summit. I think if Xi Jinping wants to discuss Taiwan, President Trump ought to say, fine, when I come to Beijing, we'll have a discussion of Taiwan, but right now the issue is North Korea. I have a slightly different view. I think it would be good for President Trump to engage uh, Chairman Xi in a discussion on Taiwan. This would be a fantastic opportunity for a President of the United States to do something 
that our president has not done for far too long, and that is to stand up to the leader of China and to demarch him to his face and to say his buildup of offensive destabilizing ballistic missiles across from Taiwan is unacceptable. That has not happened in a long time. China has drastically ramped up its deployment of missile systems across from Taiwan. These are missiles that the United States and the Soviet Union and then the Russian Federation outlawed. We outlawed and we continue to outlaw per the INF Treaty because they are so dangerous and so destabilizing and yet the United States government has said nothing, nothing. Now is a great opportunity for the president to do that. Uh, and if he wants to go even farther, to reiterate our commitment to Taiwan's defense and security at a time when the Chinese are ratcheting up uh, the pressure on Taiwan and trying to further limit uh, Taiwan's international space. I think they should have that discussion and make sure that the United States comes on strong right out of the gates, that we don't hide from this issue any longer. Obama tried to hide. The, the latter half of the Bush administration tried to hide from this issue. Now, wait a minute. Do not go there. Uh, this is ridiculous. Uh, we don't, we didn't hide in the Bush administration from this issue. And I think you need to talk to the government of Taiwan and ask them their opinion of what you want him to say before you say that he should come on with a policy that is that provocative with Beijing. I don't see how that's provocative at all. To, to demarche China for deploying offensive missiles, to demarche China for threatening uh, Taiwan at a time when Taiwan's government uh, is under such extreme threat, it would be spineless to do otherwise, in my view. And I don't think now, this president terms like is spineless. spineless and terms like capitulation to Beijing that you're suggesting that other administrations have done, I think are irresponsible terms in this situation. We have a way to go forward on this issue and we need to protect the people of Taiwan. We do not need to create a situation in which they are put at risk because we want to look tough. Well, it wouldn't be posturing if it's private. Oh, I don't think you could keep something like that private. <laughs> well, then that would be a leak worth having. No. Uh, look, I, I, since it's clear to me that, that our two panelists are so... <clears throat> so close to agreement at this point. <laughs> I'd like to, to ask Bill Snyder. Yes, yeah, so just a, a couple of uh, points on it. I, first, I, I think uh, the uh, top leadership of two uh, major states uh, tend not to uh, to try to find opportunities to have a, con a confrontational meeting at the outset. And I, I think it's unlikely, that, even though the, uh, both sides will are likely to present uh, a, a mature and, and uh, uh, coherent position of their uh, national interests, uh, the, the idea that the either are likely to um, uh, to break up uh, uh, a, a, a first meeting with this kind of uh, confrontational rhetoric, I think is un unlikely. It's just uh, not, not the, the way, way these things uh, work out. But uh, I, I think both sides will probably have to uh, call attention to their uh, respective uh, concerns. There was an uh, article this week in the South China Morning Post about uh, uh, one of the uh, 
advisors to the um, uh, state council, I believe, on Taiwan, uh, saying that uh, uh, there was pressure now for China simply to, quote, absorb um, uh, China, uh, Taiwan into uh, to China, which uh, suggested uh, doing so uh, by force, and it's it's sort of additive to all of these these other incidents we've had that are are, are uh, I think the U.S. side would not see as helpful, and I, I suspect the the parties will ventilate some of these, but I I don't see the the meeting as a as an opportunity for either side to. Uh, to make the next meeting uh, difficult to uh, to schedule, the, they're going to be meeting often. The pres President Trump has expressed a view that he's going to be president for eight years, and uh, if that's the case, we'll have plenty of opportunities to vent. But I, I don't think the either side has an interest in a, a destructive relationship from the outset. Question in the back. China Times, Jeanette Xiang Time, China Times. Um, Ian, you mentioned that um, Americans should invite um, Taiwan to join the RIMPAC, the Ring of um, Pacific Exercise. Um, I just want to ask the panelist opinion on this because it's not only involved in uh, America or Taiwan or China, actually in that area, there's a lot of other country actually involved in this exercise. So how the possibility will be in practice? Thank you. Well, the, the, uh, of course, the, uh, uh, China has generally objected to the presence of, uh, of uh, Taiwan, whether it's at the National Defense University or uh, any place else uh, where uh, China is going to be involved, and I suspect that uh, that practice would uh, continue. But it's uh, the RIMPAC exercise is, is uh, maybe just one of many uh, um, opportunities that have been denied uh, uh, Taiwan that has reduced the, the the quality of their professional education and, and uh, training. And I think even if uh, for uh, whatever uh, political or diplomatic reason is chosen with respect to to RIMPAC, I, I think the underlying thing is that that uh, a dimension that has been neglected in the arms transfer process has been uh, training and professional military education, and I think that is a, a shared interest that uh, that we should act on, and, and I hope the new administration will so decide. I would just point out that the maritime domain in the Western Pacific is getting very, very complex. I think many of the navies of Asia and of the world would really appreciate the United States to provide the cover that they need to have the opportunity to interact with the ROC Navy in Hawaii in that kind of international forum because otherwise they would not have that opportunity. And there will be instances in the coming years where these ships are passing each other in the South China Sea or in the East China Sea, or in the Western Pacific. And this is a, a fantastic opportunity for these navies to get to know each other, to develop those type of patterns of cooperation that are so greatly needed uh, given China's provocations uh, along its entire maritime periphery. Uh, as for China's participation uh, in RIMPAC, because of course that would be the issue, it's China has created a zero-sum game that it's either us or it's them. You can't have both at the same time. Uh, clearly, we should disinvite China 
uh, from RIMPAC. If you talk to U.S. naval officers about the behavior, the behavior of Chinese officers uh, at RIMPAC, it is dishonorable. Some of the things that have gone on behind closed doors, the, the Chinese uh, treatment of their hosts in Hawaii uh, are very problematic and very unprofessional. Uh, and I don't think we should be rewarding bad Chinese behavior by inviting them uh, to exercises, especially given everything that's going on in the South China Sea right now. Right here, please. Humphrey, I'm an intel analyst, um, one and a former diplomat too. And I'm wondering if um, we, we've been serving as a mailbox for uh, communications between Japanese intelligence and uh, Korean, South Korean intelligence. And late last year, we finally uh, uh, shepherded a modus vivendi in which uh, they can pass information to each other directly, saving time and hopefully uh, giving us uh, blind uh, carbon copies on the way. But I kept feeling that this third member of the triad was missing. And I'm wondering if we can quietly uh, encourage these two parties to extend the intelligence sharing agreements uh, with Taiwan, and more importantly, um, network some of the uh, weapon systems. For example, uh, hydrophone networks are much more efficient when you're able to track, uh, pass a signal from one part of the network to another without going through uh, um, Uncle Sam um, to, to track a, a vehicle in real time. So uh, that, that's, that's, I think, a huge uh, force multiplier that we need to address. Is it a possible? Or are the Japanese and Koreans just going to be too afraid of China to do anything along those lines? I, I think the uh, inhibitions to, to such collaboration are probably uh, diminishing as uh, uh, China is uh, simultaneously um, uh, increasing the uh, threat to, to all three countries. And uh, the, some of the new uh, technologies that are uh, coming along, the, the uh, advanced fiber for uh, having much higher data rate uh, exchanges between uh, sensors undersea and uh, uh, things of that sort would make these, uh, this undersea network uh, uh, of sensors much more efficient and uh, might reflect an opportunity to have the same kind of uh, sharing of undersea data that uh, we have to some degree uh, with um, uh, terrestrial and airborne information and space-based in some, in some cases. Yes, please, here. Comment. <laughs> Ready for a really interesting panel. My name is Catherine Blakely. I'm from CSBA. Uh, two questions on the Taiwanese side. We're expecting a white paper, I understand, imminently, uh, with potentially a major increase in Taiwan's defense spending. Uh, what, if any, major shift should we expect to see in Taiwan's defense posture coming out of this white paper? Secondly, uh, you alluded earlier, I think it was Ian, to issues of jointness in Taiwan's forces. Uh, I understand there's also significant recruiting and retention issues. Uh, so following on from this white paper, what is the appetite and the capability of implementing major shifts within the military forces in the Ministry of Defense of Taiwan? Well, um, my understanding is that uh, President Tsai herself has been uh, talking to the Defense Ministry about being more forward-leaning. 
looking to the future a little more strongly, and I completely support that. Um, I think that uh, what was said earlier about looking at the future threats, instead of thinking about sort of what we need today, but thinking more out into the future of warfare is what I see, and I think Mr. Schneider was saying, was what Taiwan needs to see. That there are these autonomous vehicles, there is cyberspace, there is, uh, you know, this battlefield of the future is very different from the battlefield of past conflict. And Taiwan needs to come up to speed. One of the problems Taiwan has is they're cut off, frankly, from the world and from these ideas. One of the things we can do is to bring to Taiwan what we are learning about modern warfare and the capabilities that they need to add to their arsenal. And I think this is a, a really crucial issue, and I hope that um, whatever the Ministry of Defense in Taiwan does, they put more into cyber, they look at these new technologies, they look at autonomous vehicles and artificial intelligence, this is where warfare is going. And then the other issue I raised was um, the subversion of Taiwan, the clandestine capabilities China has, which I think Taiwan has got to take seriously as well. So uh, I would just point out that Taiwan has actually had a cyber command since 1999. They just didn't call it as such. And if you look at the order of battle of the Taiwanese military, that they have had a cyber command even before the United States did. And they are on the front lines, and they've long been on the front lines of the cyber battle with China. Oh, I don't think so. Taiwan is a test bed for a malicious code that the Chinese come up with. And if you talk to FireEye or many of the other cybersecurity uh, companies that are U.S.-based, they rely very heavily on Taiwanese analysts uh, for their abilities. Uh, I used to work at a software company uh, in Taipei as a translator, uh, and so I got to learn firsthand uh, while I was there, some of that the hacking capabilities that the Taiwanese have, because that was something some of my colleagues did uh, for fun uh, in their off hours, uh, some of the programmers at the company. Um, Taiwan does have some significant capabilities in this regard, and we would, uh, all, I think, all benefit, both of our countries would benefit from closer cooperation uh, in this realm. As for the new QDR, uh, that uh, Minister of National Defense Fung uh, released, I believe, last Friday. He went before Taiwan's parliament and presented it. Uh, it's not available online yet, I don't think. It's certainly not available in English. It'll probably take a few more days uh, for that to happen. But uh, according to his uh, testimony before the LY, one of the biggest changes to uh, Taiwan's national strategy going forward is to focus more on a missile-centric uh, defense because Taiwan has a layered defense in the event of Chinese invasion, because it's the invasion scenario that drives Taiwan defense planning. If you're familiar with the Guan operational plan, which is Taiwan's plan to defend itself, uh, this is the number one threat that Taiwan has faced since 1950, when the PLA first started planning uh, for the invasion of Taiwan. Uh, and so they're, they've had a long time to prepare They've studied this to death. If you read MND's professional military literature, uh, the journals that, that come out of the Army, the Reserve uh, Command, 
uh, even the engineers and the special operations, they all have their own uh, professional technical journals. And it's just incredible some of the things that they've come up with, some of the very innovative uh, systems that they've developed to defend against that threat. And a big part of that is developing cutting-edge uh, cruise missile capabilities, anti-ship uh, missile capabilities, air defense missile capabilities. Taiwan actually has a longer-range, faster anti-ship missile than the U.S. Navy does, which is remarkable. They have a very, uh, reportedly, a very capable cruise missile program, uh, and that has finally been confirmed. Of course, this is a program that's, that goes back to the 90s, if not to the 1980s, but it's now officially, apparently, in the new QDR, uh, something that is, is going to be publicly acknowledged in order to have that deterrent value. Because there are many capabilities that if you keep them secret indefinitely, they won't help you prevent war. And so sometimes uh, it's valuable to bring out some of your capabilities, not all of them, of course, but some of them, to show the Chinese that if China does engage in massive cyber attacks on Taiwan or, or mass ballistic missile attacks on Taiwan cities, that they'll pay a cost for that. That's what the, the name of the game is all about in terms of deterrence. And I think that's a, a very positive a development that uh, we're likely to see. Rex? Uh, and this question is for uh, for Seth. Uh, <clears throat> given that uh, China is already militarizing the second island chain uh, through the creation of islands in the South China Sea, uh, what should be uh, U.S. maritime uh, posture in the region to uh, counteract that? And what's probably the most realistic and greatest threat to Taiwan, which may not be a, uh, a D-Day type invasion, but rather a blockade. Thank you. Uh, well, uh, the, uh, uh, the U.S. position, of course, is, is based on its uh, appreciation of international law, that it has the right of, uh, of uh, passage for uh, not only commerce, but uh, uh, naval and air combatants through uh, these uh, international waters. The, the Chinese positions from a military perspective are, are very vulnerable. They, uh, uh, that if there were a, a, a full-scale conflict, uh, they, they would not uh, be able to, to hold those positions. I, th I think the experience of uh, Imperial Japan uh, showed that uh, uh, a tight grip on little islands is not a, a good a strategy, and uh, so I, I think the although the uh, Chinese have militarized it, I, I think that's a, uh, a bit of an exaggeration of uh, the, uh, the uh, projection of uh, Chinese power. It's really uh, to s stabilize their diplomatic position, but uh, everything we've heard so far from the administration is that they in intend to retain the uh, uh, right of uh, uh, freedom of navigation and do not consider the, the uh, South China Sea an inland sea as, uh, as uh, China has suggested and uh, uh, seem likely to me to, uh, to continue it and perhaps even have uh, more, uh, 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 more forceful demonstrations of the freedom of navigation. I would um, push back a little bit on the idea that the blockade is the most dangerous scenario facing Taiwan. A blockade is the most likely. 
It's the most likely, but it's not the most dangerous. A blockade would be very difficult for China to pull off uh, over a long period of time. The, the type of timeline that would be required to have the coercive effect uh, on Taiwan that Beijing would desire. Blockade is uh, easier to do than invasion, of course. Invasion is almost impossible uh, when you're faced with the type of layered defenses that, that Taiwan has already developed and continues to develop. Um, no successful amphibious operation in human history has ever been carried out in the face of a robust defensive missile regime, a, a robust reconnaissance strike uh, regime, the likes of which Taiwan has developed. Uh, and there are many other reasons why the invasion scenario is uh, the least likely of all possible scenarios. But of course, it's the most dangerous, because this is the only scenario where China could actually conquer and occupy Taiwan, which of course is uh, the CCP's ultimate objective. Uh, the blockade, you can ratchet up pressure on Taiwan, and you can force the Taiwanese to back away from uh, some kind of constitutional revision or some kind of statement that the president may have made that, that offended the Chinese to an extreme degree. But a blockade could not force Taiwan to submit to occupation. That would take an invasion, and the invasion uh, is much, much harder to pull off. So I, I think the blockade is likely, more likely, uh, but uh, certainly not as dangerous. Uh, Rick Fisher, uh, International Assessment and Strategy Center. Uh, excellent panel all around. Thank you. Uh, when the Chinese also uh, mention next generation technologies, comb the combining of artificial intelligence, uh, weaponization of uh, information spheres, uh, they also include dominance of outer space. Uh, there are Chinese experts who've written books that uh, try to round all these up as a fifth generation in uh, the evolution of warfare. And uh, we can see very clearly that <laughs> they're working on all the pieces and uh, are centralizing the development uh, or the identification, development, and then projection of these future cap capabilities within their strategic support force. That is uh, going to be the harbinger of, of their fifth generation of warfare as it develops into the next decade and, and into the 2030s. Uh, the aspect of cooperation with Taiwan that I'm, I'm interested in hearing some comment on, perhaps uh, from Bill, others, is the degree to which we cooperate with Taiwan in terms of uh, outer space. Uh, we launch satellites that the Taiwanese uh, manufacture uh, down in Sinshu. Uh, but should we also be working with Taiwan and encouraging Taiwan to develop a wider space access capability, not only uh, for uh, commercial ventures, but uh, as the, Kore the South Koreans and the, and the Japanese have been doing for a long time, to help to proliferate uh, the ability of our allies to have access to space in ways that uh, make it much more difficult for China to, in the future, uh, establish uh, control over low Earth orbit uh, with all of the strategic and uh, 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 battle on Earth implications that that has. Thank you. 
I, I think there are some uh, good opportunities to deal with uh, uh, better security of, uh, of space platforms. The, if you see what's happening in the commercial sphere, they're doing the opposite of what we've done in the military sphere, uh, where, where we've made huge satellites that, that uh, have extraordinary capability but uh, also have extraordinary vulnerabilities. Uh, uh, Uber's uh, concept of uh, putting 4,000 small satellites up there for uh, creating a, uh, a network is, is a, um, not only a practical, but it's a much more constructive way to, uh, to create a, capa a communications capability in space that has uh, much more redundancy, uh, much wider bandwidth, and uh, uh, generally a, a much better capacity to serve uh, uh, the needs of, uh, of not only uh, the country putting the payload in orbit, but it also can be uh, run on uh, both a shared commercial and uh, defense uh, um, utilization. So I, I think that uh, as we were discussing earlier about the uh, concept of uh, absorbing more of the applications of the technologies of information. Uh, uh, Taiwan is, is very well uh, prepared uh, for it. Some of that AI, artificial intelligence work and so forth is also uh, being done in Taiwan, and I think that uh, Taiwan's uh, defense sector needs to catch up to its uh, commercial sector in terms of the absorption, application, and use and, and development of new concepts of operation that actually exploit this, uh, the opportunities that the technologies are creating. I agree completely with, with that. I think that um, there are opportunities for Taiwan to engage in space, and uh, these information technologies, as was said, uh, many of them Taiwan industry is very good at. Um, but I, I do disagree with my colleague that they're, they're on the cutting edge in terms of cyber warfare. Uh, in a $10 billion defense budget, with all of the things they have to do, it's hard for me to believe that they can be on the cutting edge um, in, in cyber warfare. Okay, I think we have time for one more question, and that will be overtime. So, uh, here. Faiso Faso, Um I wanted to uh, comment on um, the Taiwan's role in the U.S.-China relationship because um, we always see this, you know, the Chinese militarization is obviously alarming, but what kind of diplomatic role could Taiwan play um, to a more stable U.S.-China relationship where we can strategically cooperate and um, uh, that's it. I think there's been some uh, efforts to uh, to try and get uh, Taiwan integrated into some international institutions, for example, that uh, don't have the uh, politico-military sensitivities that others might, where uh, uh, Taiwan and China most both may have opportunities to contribute. Uh, so far, that hasn't been uh, a very uh, successful approach because of China's concern about conferring any sort of uh, uh, political or diplomatic legitimacy on it. But uh, uh, perhaps the, there may be some uh, some new opportunities, and that would be, it seemed to me, would be a constructive path for 
the new administration to pursue in terms of trying to develop some of these opportunities that may have been offensive to China when it was smaller and weaker, but now may see as something that could be seen as a constructive diplomatic development. I personally don't share the view that we should somehow use Taiwan as a chip or as an instrument to improve or advance our position or our relationship with the People's Republic of China. I think the U.S.-Taiwan relationship should be based and should be judged on its own merits because it's in the U.S. national interest. Taiwan is, and here I'm quoting our AIT director, Ken Moy, Taiwan is an example, one of the few examples that we have in Asia of what our vision for the future of the Asia-Pacific looks like. Taiwan is a role model. It's a role model for countries across the region. And to the extent that Taiwan could play a role that would help us, and again, I'm not suggesting that that's how we should think about it, but Taiwan naturally plays a positive role vis-a-vis China because the only way that we'll ever have a truly healthy relationship with China is when China has a democratic government. As long as China has a communist government, authoritarian government, we will always be at odds with each other, and there will always be the potential for crisis or even conflict. And so Taiwan's example, its democratic example, it's the first Chinese-speaking country in history to become a successful democracy and to respect human rights and to embrace universal values. That is Taiwan's greatest contribution, not just to China, but to the entire region and also to the United States. It's a great success story, and we, I think, are remiss to forget that. I'm going to surprise everybody by agreeing on that question. I think that it is the wrong way to frame the issue to say somehow that Taiwan can help us resolve these problems. What we've said in our history is China and Taiwan must figure out their relationship. They must, if they're going to ever come to an understanding, it's got to be one that both sides agree to and no coercion. And let's let them figure this out. And we figure out our relationship with Taipei and we figure out our relationship with Beijing, but we don't, you know, this is one of the key points in the Taiwan guidelines, the six assurances, that we're not going to force anybody to negotiate. We're not going to pre-notify our Taiwan arms sales to Beijing for their approval. These are very sensible ways of dealing with the issue, and I think we continue. Well, panel, these are really excellent presentations, and I appreciate your joining us today and sharing your insights with the group. I'd like to thank all of you for coming out today as well. And hope that you will stay tuned to Hudson, Hudson's site, because there will be more such discussions 
on this and related issues to the relationship between the United States and Taiwan um, in the coming months. Thank you very much.